You're listening to KHOL. This is a special regional episode of Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. This week's show features stories from our ongoing reporting project with the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative about the transition away from fossil fuels across the Mountain West. You can find KHOL stories for this project on our website at 891khol.org. But today we'll hear from reporters in Colorado and Utah on everything from tribal solar generation to how mountain biking can help mitigate environmental destruction around former mines. Also, just a quick reminder that we have an exciting event coming up at the Center for the Arts on Wednesday, February 9th. Join KHOL, Wild File, and the Jackson Hole News and Guide for Local Live, a night to go behind the scenes of local news. The evening will feature print, radio, and photo journalists from all three publications sharing the stories behind their reporting, plus a DJ set by KHOL music director Jack Catlin. More information and virtual or in-person tickets are available at jhcenterforthearts.org. Our first story today comes from KSJD in Southwest Colorado, where the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe is turning to solar generation to provide cheap electricity for its members and infrastructure. But the tribe also has ambitions beyond its community, like selling solar power for a profit. Lucas Brady Woods reports. Driving along a gravel road on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation, it's easy to see why the landscape is a good place to generate solar power. It's the high desert of southwest Colorado, which means there's a lot of open space and bright sunlight. In one of those wide open spaces, a valley at the base of Ute Mountain, is the tribe's main solar project. Scott Clough is the Ute Mountain Ute's Director of Environmental Programs. It's a way to save electricity dollars. We even created our own little microgrid here. The project is made up of rows of solar panels that cover about four and a half acres of former alfalfa fields. Since it went online in 2020, it's provided electricity to the main town on the reservation, Toyok. Klo says it helps power homes, governmental buildings, and the tribe's casino. He also says the project is just the beginning. This project is that stepping stone to get the tribal membership to Uh, embrace this technology and what it can do for the tribe. There are two other community-level Ute Mountain Ute solar projects in the works. One of them will be similar to the Toyok solar project, but will serve another community, White Mesa. Another smaller-scale project will provide power to a housing facility. But the tribe also hopes solar can offer economic benefits beyond just providing supplemental electricity by providing power that can be sold outside the tribe for a profit. We're looking at how to replace those many millions of dollars that once came to the tribe through oil and gas with renewable energy. The Ute Mountain Utes have been in the oil and gas business for over 70 years, and historically it made up a large portion of the tribe's economy. But that revenue has been declining for a long time. According to Klo, that decline, combined with increasing pressure from climate change, pushed the tribe to move towards a clean energy economy instead. Archie House Jr. is vice chairman of the tribe's council and is also involved in the renewable energy team. He says replacing the revenue lost from the oil and gas industry is really about investing back into the community. A lot of our revenue that uh, comes from this uh, commercial status here 
will be focused back into the community to help the individual member, whether it's with food, services, or um, infrastructure, that will actually um, boost up the community to a level to where we once seen with our oil and gas funding. But the commercial project is still in its early stages, and tribal leadership is proceeding carefully with its development. One important step, for example, is making sure the community is on board. House says tribal leadership plans to involve the public through surveys and presentations about the projects. That will help people understand that investing in renewable energy isn't just about making money. The solar and renewable is more of a clean type of um, history that will leave for our future generations here, it's better to be part of the answer than going off in another direction to where it may not be something good for our future. And House says community members are already noticing changes to the climate, like warming temperatures and less water. Aliette Frank is a lecturer in the Environmental and Climate Institute at Fort Lewis College. Her work focuses on climate change and tribal communities in the Four Corners region. It's particularly important in the Southwest because If you bring in the idea of environmental justice, a lot of these populations are the ones that are hardest hit by changing climate. She also hopes the Ute Mountain Ute solar projects can go beyond their own people and serve as an example for others who can also invest in renewables. Back on the Ute Mountain Ute reservation, Scott Clough agrees. Just the magnitude of potential for renewable energy in Indian country across the United States could put tribes ahead of the rest of the nation and, quite frankly, a leader in the world coming from Indian country. And that's profound. But he also says at the end of the day, Ute Mountain Ute renewable energy projects aren't about standing out as a leader. They're about making sure the needs of the tribe's people are met well into the future. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Toyak, Colorado. Hundred and sixty-nine low-income essential workers in Colorado are now using e-bikes paid for by the state. The Can Do Colorado e-bike program appears to be a hit with participants and a positive step in the transition away from fossil fuels. Hannah Lee Myers of KGNU in Boulder reports. It seems the sound of e-bikes whizzing by is going to become increasingly familiar during commutes. Sandy Syrian, e-bike program manager at Community Cycles in Boulder, says federal data suggests e-bikes should become a more familiar means of transportation. Over 60% of every car trip is within six miles of a home and uh, 75% of every car trip is within 10 miles of somebody's home. And those short trips mean many of us are good candidates to replace fossil fuel vehicle trips with e-bike travel. A change, a recent in-depth study, found could cut urban residents' travel emissions by 67% if one car ride a day was replaced with an e-bike trip. The same study found if just 10% of the urban public would do the same, overall transportation emissions would fall by around 10%. 
Here enters the Can-Do Colorado e-bike program. After a successful mini-pilot in the fall of 2020, in spring of 2021, the Colorado Energy Office awarded grant funding to five organizations, including Boulder's Community Cycles. Each organization was charged with outfitting a portion of the 156 low-income essential workers participating with new e-bikes and all the required accessories. It's been an incredible blessing for me. 36-year-old Joshua Robinson applied for the program while experiencing homelessness. And after a few months with his e-bike, he's thrilled and has ruled out trying to buy a car altogether. There's not a lot of situations I can think of where I would need a vehicle necessarily. Like even with snowboarding, the, there's a bus that goes up there. And sometimes if I want like a little bit of extra range, I can put my bike on the bus and then ride it from there. And especially with like rates the way they are right now with cars, I don't know if you've looked at that, but like rates are crazy. I don't really see myself in the foreseeable future getting a car or needing to get a car, really. Fellow participant Howard Trapita agrees with Robinson that the program has had a life-altering positive effect. Even though the transition to the e-bike lifestyle can take some time and dedication. The minute I get on my bike to leave work, I'm a little tired. And sometimes I think about taking that bus. But the minute I'm out there, um, I think if people just give it a shot, not two weeks, they give it three months, then they wouldn't want to do it any other way. You know, My gas money goes towards a nice bottle of wine for the weekend. Can-Do Colorado program participants have been logging their travel info on an app developed by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Senior program manager at the Colorado Energy Office, Sarah Thorne, has been reviewing that data. And her opinion is... I would say overall, like, very successful. Thorne says the positive results of this pilot program fit well with federal and state plans to encourage the use of e-bikes as a means of travel in the future. So I think moving forward, you know, there are going to be a lot more programs available and it's not just going to be us. It's going to be our neighboring states. It's going to be smaller communities, whether that's through their utility or through their local government. And that also includes, you know, infrastructure, federal dollars. All of that stuff is going to be available in the next, you know, six to nine months. And I think that's really going to change what's available to people and their ability to participate in any sort of e-bike action. President Biden's Build Back Better Act currently includes a $900 tax credit for e-bike purchases. From the state to the bike shop to the participants, there was agreement on another necessary factor to make e-bikes a successful part of the transition away from fossil fuels. Bicycle infrastructure. Infrastructure. Biking infrastructure. Like protected bike lanes, safe bike storage, robust trail systems, and e-bike compatible mounts on buses all infrastructure that keeps bike users safe and comfortable on roads, trails, and when traveling in conjunction with public transit, which is a must if e-bikes are going to win over commuters and coax them out of their cars. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Hanley Myers. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. 
I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. This week's show is featuring stories from our reporting project with the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative about the transition away from fossil fuels. Mining has been an economic driver in Southwest Colorado since the late 1800s. But when a local mine and power plant closed in 2017, a number of communities were forced to reinvent themselves. Julia Caulfield of KOTO in Telluride has more on the region's effort to create a new economic future. Walk into Wild Gals Market in Nucla, Colorado, and the store is bustling. Owner Galette Corngold is doing inventory when a member of the community busts through the door. She got her days mixed up and forgot people would be coming to her house for book club in a few short hours. She needs soup and bread. What? Book club today? I thought it's tomorrow. <laughs> Wild Gals is a success story for the West End Economic Development Corporation an organization supporting small businesses like Wild Gals Market and encouraging new industry and jobs in the area, something crucial since the closure of local mines. Nucla and Wild Gals sits in Colorado's West End, a collection of communities on the West Ends of Montrose and San Miguel counties in the southwest corner of the state, right on the Utah border. If you ask Dina Sheriff, the region has always been boom and bust. The people that came out here, if they were not the original homesteaders, they came out here as part of a mining operation or milling operation for uranium. And then when that kind of fell out of favor post-World War II, we saw a little bit of a bust then. Uranium came back a little bit in the early 80s, busted again in the 90s, and it's been very volatile since then. Sheriff is the executive director of the West End Economic Development Corporation, or Weedsy. The last bust came when the New Horizon mine and the Tri-State Power Generation Facility closed in 2017. It's been challenging when you have a community of less than 1,000 people. You're talking 10% of your population was impacted by this. And that's just direct impact. That doesn't count the grocery stores and the gas stations and the hair salons and everything that were also impacted. According to Sheriff, about 60% of the mining workforce moved. Businesses on Main Street largely sat empty, but a group of locals in the West End did see the closure coming and created Weedsea with the aim of helping new businesses and the region weather the storm. That's everything from how to set up your books, how to hire, do you need a personnel manual, where do you find employees. We really help them try and identify every piece of their business so that they can be successful. Sheriff says Weedsy focuses on three areas of business growth, entrepreneurship, value-added agriculture, and outdoor recreation and tourism. To date, Weedsy has worked with over 100 entrepreneurs in the area, with 36 of those turning into businesses. Galette Corngold, over at Wild Gals, was one of those entrepreneurs, although she didn't lose her job when the mine closed. Originally from Montreal, Canada, she and her husband moved into the area just before the pandemic and bought an old mechanic shop. And we had this great space at the front of the building, and I decided to open a food store. 
Wild Gals Market focuses on local, organic, and homemade goods from the region, with a selection of ingredients from the international market. We have elk and other game meats. Korngold says Weedsy was integral to developing the plan for Wild Gals. I took accounting classes and business mentoring from Weedsy, and because we don't have a commercial kitchen of our own yet, and we make a lot of homemade food, we use the kitchen at Wheatsea, and that's just been the greatest resource. The West End is shifting. New businesses are opening, and broadband across the region makes remote work easy, drawing workers from across the state and country looking for a rural life. Corngold says it's an exciting time to be in the area. I feel like we're at the beginning of a renaissance here, and it's really cool to be a part of it. The future of the region is still to be determined. But for Sheriff, she hopes the days of boom and bust are over. For her, it's all about steady, community-building growth over the long term. And Weedsy plans to be there every step of the way. For KOTO and the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, I'm Julia Caulfield. Our next story today focuses on the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, which regulates the state's oil and gas industry. The commission has been discussing whether companies should put more money up front as financial assurance, commonly known as a bond, to guarantee that there's enough money for the state to clean up a well site if a company goes bankrupt or walks away. Chad Rich of KVNF in Paonia reports. In 2019, the mission of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, or COGCC, changed from fostering to regulating the oil and gas industry. One of the measures the commission is evaluating is how wells are bonded or guaranteed that they'll be cleaned up when extraction is complete. COGCC Commissioner John Messner. The current financial assurances may not be adequate and we need to undergo a rulemaking in order to evolve those financial assurance requirements. If a company walks away from a site without cleaning it up, it becomes an orphan well. And it is the state of Colorado's responsibility to address plugging, abandoning, reclamating, and remediating that particular well or operation. Bonds for wells are like deposits for rental apartments. When the operator is done at the site, they're required to clean it up, like a tenant would an apartment. If that happens, the bond is returned to the operator. If they walk away, the state keeps the bond and becomes responsible for cleanup. The COGCC estimates it costs over $82,000 to clean up a single well, but bonds are often a fraction of that cost. Individual bonds range from $10,000 to $20,000 per well, and blanket bonds can bring down the cost to less than $1,000 per well. According to Carbon Tracker, a nonprofit that monitors financial implications around fossil fuels, that leaves nearly $7 billion in uninsured wells in Colorado. 
One way to guarantee operators clean up their sites is to require companies to put up bonds that cover 100% of the cleanup costs. But Lynn Granger of the American Petroleum Institute says that's not realistic. Unfortunately, not all companies would be able to get to 100% full cost bonding or it wouldn't make good business sense for them. And that would have a pretty devastating effect on the industry here in Colorado. Nobody's advocating for that. It's probably true that it would be quite difficult for the vast majority of companies to come up with the full cost of their cleanup operations tomorrow. That's Andrew Forks Gudmanson of the League of Oil and Gas Impacted Communities, or LOGIC, a Denver-based advocacy group. We want operators to work towards that full cost bonding amount over a reasonable period of time. In some cases, that could be five years. In some cases, it could be 10 years. But at the end of a you know, reasonable pay-in period, we would like every well to be covered by a full cost bond. Out of Colorado's roughly 50,000 wells, between four and 500 are orphaned. That pales in comparison to the 8,000 found in Pennsylvania. Still, these sites can emit greenhouse gases like methane or leak harmful chemicals into waterways and onto soils. And oil and gas production is still on the rise. That means more wells will be drilled in the coming years and decades, even as renewables chip away at the energy sector's market share. Forks Gudmanson of Logic says that could result in more orphan wells. The oil and gas industry in Colorado is essentially at the whim of the global oil and gas market. The vast majority of operators plug in abandoned wells through cash flow. Basically, as they generate revenue for their producing wells, they use that money to plug old wells. If they generate less revenue, they will have less revenue with which to plug and abandon wells when they're at the end of their life. So anything that could negatively impact the value of oil and gas could stand to negatively impact cleanup operations in the state. As hazardous as they may be, these sites could actually provide some economic benefits to frontline communities, as the Biden administration recently approved funding for cleaning up orphan wells. Dan Brissett is with the Environment and Energy Institute, a bipartisan nonprofit that promotes sustainable societies. Plugging wells is an economic activity, and somebody has to do it. And there is some transferability of skills between fossil fuel jobs and oil plugging jobs. So to the extent that there's any silver lining, it comes in the form of jobs. But Brissette says it's not worth it. You would never trade orphaned wells for oil plugging jobs. The new rules are expected to be released the last week of February. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Chad Rich. Coal Basin on Colorado's western slope was the site of a series of 20th century mining disasters. Now a privately owned parcel surrounded by national forest land provides free public access to custom designed mountain bike trails. In our last story today, Morgan Neely reports for KDNK in Carbondale on how the trails offer more than recreation. They're also meant to mitigate the environmental destruction left behind by former mine operators. That's Trina Ortega cruising down a rocky mountain bike trail to the edge of the burbling waters of Dutch Creek. On a trail map, the creek crossing is marked as being at own risk. But really, you could say the same for the entire five-mile network of trails at Coal Basin Ranch, 
four miles west of the historic mining village of Redstone, Colorado. Your closest access to Wi-Fi is in Redstone, and there is a, you know, Carbondale Fire does have a facility there, but it's not always stacked with someone right on site. Ortega is the Coal Basin Ranch and Trails Manager for the Katina Foundation, a Carbondale, Colorado-based private foundation that gives to Native American tribes and funds various conservation efforts. Katina owns Coal Basin Ranch, the 221-acre site of the long-shuttered Dutch Creek coal mines operated by Mid-Continent Resources. Ortega hopes recreational trail design and building can be a model for the restoration of other sites ravaged by old mining operations. The transition of Coal Basin from fossil fuel extraction site to recreation hub began in 1992. Just a year after ceasing operations, Mid-Continent Resources went bankrupt, leaving cleanup of the denuded site to the state of Colorado. It started quite a long time ago, you know, so this is building on those restoration efforts where the community and the state and Run for Conservancy um, and other entities have gone up and done um, spreading of grass seeds and wildflower seeds. And The Dutch Creek mines were in use for decades and yielded 23 million tons of coal for American steel mills. But all that extraction had a heavy toll on the land and the miners. The early operations were not benign in the basin as well. In 1956, Mid-Continent Coal and Coke began operations up there. That's Steve Renner, senior reclamation specialist for the Colorado Division of Reclamation, Mining, and Safety, at a presentation on the history of Coal Basin in 2012. The mines near Redstone have a grim history. On a Tuesday in late December 1965, nine men died when a buildup of methane exploded just 15 minutes before the end of their shift. The men were all working an extra hour each night that week to make up for time they were planning on taking off for the New Year's holiday. Fred Hefferly, then District 15 president of the United Mine Workers, told press at the time that he'd complained numerous times about conditions in the mine, which United Mine Workers officials called the most dangerous in Colorado. On April 15, 1981, a cloud of methane and coal dust ignited. That explosion killed 15 men, the youngest of whom was a 20-year-old Glenwood Springs resident. It's difficult to say how familiar the average recreational user of the property is with the mine disasters, which are commemorated by Miners Park in Carbondale and a memorial in Redstone. The bike park at Coal Basin Ranch opened for its first season in July 2021, and Ortega estimates that more than 300 visitors rode the trails during the first couple weeks of operation. A kids' camp event later in the summer brought more than 100 youth to the site. Nicole? Um, yeah, get ready. It's Zug Schwert. Z is in zebra. <laughs> U, G. A supervisor at Propaganda Pie, a Detroit-style pizza restaurant in Redstone, says she saw a noticeable bump in business from mountain bikers after Coal Basin Ranch opened its trails to the public. Tourism, for sure. As far as the mountain biking goes, like with the Coal Basin, we definitely saw more people up here when it first got started, but there was a long period that... Redstone is still a sleepy, unincorporated town of less than 100 residents. 17 miles to the north, Carbondale is going through a boom. The average home price exceeded $1 million a few years ago, and most estimates now put the town's population at 7,000. There's a new city market and a paved path along State Highway 133 that takes bikers and runners five miles south to a KOA campground. Pitkin County Open Space and Trails and Gunnison County have planned for years to eventually complete an 80-plus mile path between Carbondale and Crested Butte. 
one more link from Colorado's fossil fuel past to its recreation future. This restoration story is getting people to know the landscape, to experience it, and providing a way for them to experience it safely and also become maybe a steward of the landscape as well. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Morgan Neely. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.